Well, hello there, and welcome to another episode of This is Technology Ethics. This is episode four. Uh, to quickly bring you up to speed, uh, this podcast series uh, features a set of conversations between myself, John Danaher, and my colleague and friend, Sven Nyholm. It's loosely based on the structure of Sven's book, This is Technology Ethics, and it is intended to be a set of intro-level conversations, debates about issues in technology ethics. So this particular episode focuses on issues around autonomy and behavior change. I won't say too much more about it because there's more of an introduction in the conversation itself. All I will say by way of signing off is that if you enjoy this podcast, uh, please consider rating or reviewing it on whatever podcasting service you happen to be using. Uh, That uh, does a lot of good or help when it comes to spreading the word about the show. And also consider sharing it with friends or colleagues or students or posting about it online. Anything that can be done to grow the audience for the show would be most appreciated. Okay, without any further comment from me, we'll hand over to the conversation between myself and Sven about autonomy and behavior change. Okay, Sven, so we're back for another discussion of technology ethics, and today we're going to turn our attention to the idea of behavior change and uh, control again, and the ideas of control and autonomy become a theme in in this uh, conversation. So, I mean, let, let's just talk very generically or generally first about the idea or the concept of behavior change. Uh, what is that? And then we can talk a bit about the intersection between behavior change and modern technology. Yeah. So, well, I mean, behavior change. I mean, uh, I guess one way of thinking about it is that we tend to think of ourselves as having good habits and bad habits. So there are certain things that we enjoy doing uh, and uh, maybe some of them are good for us. I mean, maybe you enjoy, uh, I think you enjoy swimming if I remember correctly. Uh, I myself enjoy running. And so those are both activities that uh, we do and we do them and enjoy them and they're good for us. But let's say that you also are a cigarette smoker uh, and, uh, or that I am, I don't know, I, I eat too much sugar or something like that. Uh, so these might also be things that we enjoy and that we're prone to be doing, but we also might know that they're not necessarily the most healthy things to be doing with our time. Uh, and yet, uh, it may be hard to give up these habits. Uh, obviously, something like uh, cigarettes might be quite ad- addictive, but uh, even if it's not something that's highly addictive, still, like, you know, habits, they, you know, they, they tend to stick with us. And uh, we may... Uh, say to ourselves, okay, I'm going to quit smoking. And then maybe for, for one day, you don't smoke a cigarette, but then you're, you know, next time you see a pack of cigarettes, you, you, you take a cigarette and start smoking again, so to speak, or uh, whatever it might be. So we, we, we tend to form all sorts of habits and we classify them into sort of habits that I guess that are neutral, but most of them, we, I guess we get, tend to see as good or bad habits. And the idea of behavior change, as I'm understanding it here, it's not just on one occasion not doing a certain thing or or on one occasion doing a certain thing so let's say that you don't like swimming and then you tell yourself okay i'm going to take up swimming and you go to the pool one time you swim and that's it that doesn't count as behavior change in the way i'm thinking about it uh, in this chapter in this context it's rather that you sort of establish new habits new patterns of behavior uh, and the problem 
however, is that uh, this can be hard to do. If you try something out and you kind of immediately fall in love with it, then fine, then you might get smitten by the new habit or behavior. But very often we tend to think, oh, okay, well, that was interesting. I, maybe I enjoyed it, but uh, making a habit out of something can be quite hard. Uh, turning in something into a pattern of behavior. Uh, so this is, if I manage to do that, I, I adopt a new habit, uh, then I've uh, done, uh, you know, I've, I've made a change in my behavior. This is this is sort of what I'm talking about when I'm talking about behavior change. I mean, not, not just me, but people in general. I think it's more about habits and patterns of behavior as opposed to you know, discrete actions taken here and there. So that, I think that's where we're Yeah, I, I think, I mean, I, I would agree with that kind of framing of it. That makes sense that it's not, as you say, just kind of contingent occasional variations in our behavior, which often happen you know we we do different things with our lives on a day-to-day basis sometimes so we don't quite you know match our all our historical habits or practices on on a day-to-day basis but it's sort of ingrained longer term habitual changes is is what we tend to focus on i also think that the way in which you framed it or introduced it is interesting insofar as you kind of focused immediately on what we might call habits of a healthy lifestyle or like changes associated with healthy lifestyle and i suppose for me the concept or idea of behavior change is something that i do see a lot in medical psychological literature that they're interested in behavior change as part of like a healthy lifestyle um you know changing behaviors around eating habits or exercise habits um and things like that and there's actually like a whole research group at my university dedicated to uh, behavior change for medical purposes, like changing the behavior of patients with chronic diseases and things like that. So it is often framed or discussed in that kind of medicalized context. I don't know if you have any thoughts on why that might be the case, um, but I also think there's other things we could talk about here in terms of long-term history of philosophy actually being interested in a habit formation and self-control and things like that. But I don't know if you have any comments on that kind of medicalization theme within this lit- discussion. Yeah, I mean, it, it is interesting, especially if you indeed compare it with the history of philosophy, because I mean, the other thing that comes to mind for me is sort of Aristotle and ideas about virtue. Uh, and, you know, Aristotle, of course, uh, thinking that virtue is a kind of habit. Uh, and he thinks that uh, in order to acquire a virtue, you have to practice and make something into a habit. Uh, so that, in, you know, before you know how to be a generous person, let's say you first have to perform acts of generosity and then, you know, by doing that, uh, you know, over extended periods of time, according to Aristotle, you can form a ha- virtuous habit, and then this will become more intuitive to you, something that you do as a matter of habit and not to, because you every time have to think about it. So, I mean, that that's a quite a different context, but I would definitely agree with you that in the modern uh, context, people primarily talk about behavior change. Uh, I mean, of course, I don't, I, I don't think that Aristotle talked about behavior change. He did talk about habit formation. Uh, but yeah, in the in the current context, I guess it's primarily in terms of healthy lifestyles and things unhealthy lifestyles. Uh, I mean, of course, you can also imagine habits uh, in other af- aspects of life that can be interesting. Uh, you know, I don't know, your work-related habits, uh, and people talk about how they can become more productive at work, how they can become more efficient, effective, and that can often be related to ideas about good and bad habits. Indeed, uh, one of these books that are read by a lot of people who want to improve their uh, effectiveness at work is called, I think, the seven or five or whatever habits of uh, successful people. Seven, yeah. Seven. A fa- uh, famous sort of 
business self-help book. Yeah. That's right. So there too, the idea of habits uh, is an important idea. And so uh, it does pop up in other areas of life, but in the, as you say, maybe the health uh, domain is, is where philosophers at least talk most about it. Yeah, I don't mean I don't know if this will come up necessarily in, in this discussion, but this does come up sometimes in relation to uh, technologies of of behavior change and um, self tracking, which we went talk about a bit. But that there's a kind of a medicalized focus within it, and that that medicalized focus is in itself sometimes ethically problematic or misleading in in some way. Uh, I mean, the other forum in which it tends to come up as you mentioned is something like business and work life that we need to kind of optimize ourselves for efficiency in, in the workplace so that's a, a very common theme in in self-help literature like Stephen Covey's seven habits of highly effective people but there's a whole raft of other books that essentially address the same idea again I don't know if there's a, something interesting to be said about why that sort of theme of self-optimization and self-control is so common nowadays and whether there is something in it that needs to be scrutinized from an ethical perspective so i mean i know colleagues of mine in i don't know like critical theory type disciplines would say that this is something to do with kind of neoliberal ideals or neoliberal governance systems that the individual has to view themselves as kind of a project that is to be optimized or made more efficient in order to be kind of a more efficient contributor to the capitalist workplace and that there's something maybe insidious about this ideology that's usually the subtext within those uh, discussions but as you say if you go all the way back to aristotle there's an ideal of self-optimization or improving oneself that has very kind of long roots in philosophical tradition right Absolutely. I mean, a lot of uh, uh, Aristotle and Plato, but also the so-called Hellenistic schools, like uh, the Stoics, the Epicureans, the, the skeptics, the, the cynics, uh, they're all, I mean, they're doing a kind of philosophical self-help. I mean, it's about how to live a good life, what kind of habits to adopt, uh, what kind of, uh, you know, should you live with a small group of close friends or should you be a you know, political member of the political class, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, they, it's all about the kind of life improvement and uh, yeah, so I mean, some of the self-help books that you pick up these days in in, in bookstores, I mean, they tend to be about things like stoicism and uh, uh, the, the ideas that you know how the ancient philosophers can help you live more, you know, a more successful life today, uh, how they can make you happier and uh, make you more effective at work, etc. So, so you know, there's a kind of interplay between these ancient ideas about this and current trends uh, in in you know self-help and, uh, and other places for sure. Yeah, the, 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 there's a whole cottage industry of stoic self-help books nowadays, uh, which I find amusing or interesting, and but also like, you know, how Aristotle can help you live or how Plato can save your life. And this seems to be every philosopher you can think of, somebody has sort of written a book that shows how that philosophy can help you live a better life. Again, partly again, changing your behavior and your habits and beliefs to be a better person uh, i did a number of years ago uh, kind of toy with the idea or i thought it'd be amusing to write a book on like schopenhauer's guide to being a more effective worker or something like this um but uh, i don't know maybe, maybe that's a, a a joke that is only appealing to um some people who know a bit about schopenhauer's philosophy because schopenhauer of course famously pessimistic and uh, had a rather 
jaundiced view of of life. Let's put it that way. Although I can easily imagine somebody taking elements of his philosophy and putting it into a self help book for sure. Uh, yeah, just just before we talk about, about about technology, I do want to maybe just bring up one idea, um, which is again, this is a concept which has very kind of deep roots in philosophy, but has it maybe in modern times been associated more with like psychology, let's say, which is the problem of I'm going to get the pronunciation wrong, but like the problem of, of acrasia or weakness of the will. So th- this is kind of a theme that runs through self-help, uh, but also behavior change, which is this idea that we actually oftentimes fall short of our ideals or preferences. There's a thing that we know that we ought to do or we, we desire to do. We want to give up smoking, let's say, but we actually lack the self-control or will to do so. And so this means we might need some sort of assistance in this program or process of behavior change. Do you have anything you wanted to maybe comment on in relation to that idea, a problem of acrasia, self-control? Uh, yeah, so I mean, maybe one thing that's related to it is what psychologists sometimes call this, this distinct, distinction between intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. And so this is going to, I guess, take us to, to gamification and other uh, uh, techniques that are used for uh, motivating people to change their habits. The idea being that uh, there are some things. Uh, I mean, to go back to my first comment that you sort of uh, when we start talking, I mean, what that we like to do, maybe enjoy swimming, smoking cigarettes. Uh, I don't know, uh, reading philosophy books, and there are other things that maybe you know you're good. They're good for you, but you have no intrinsic motivation to do them. You don't enjoy them for their own sake, or you're not sort of intrinsically motivated. However, there could be things that could give you a kind of extrinsic external motivation to do them. For example, turning something into a game. Uh, and so uh, actually I was reading a little bit of philosophy of gamification the other day, and I read this paper by a philosopher whose last name is Kim. Uh, and uh, he was talking about the uh, the ALS ice bucket challenge. Uh, this was about, I guess, a decade ago or more uh, now that people would uh, Presumably, uh, the idea came from someone who really cared about ALS. The, this, uh, you know, it was in 2014 because I 2014. I, yeah. I happen to remember the date yet, but I, uh, yeah. okay, yeah. The, the idea is that you know we we want to bring uh, this disease to people's attention, and well, how can we do it? Well, one thing we can do is to pour ice water over our heads, and so uh, presumably a lot of people uh, who didn't really care one way or the other about ALS, they were, however, very motivated to be seen on social media pouring cold water over their heads and getting likes and uh, attention, et cetera. So they were willing to help spread the message about ALS. Uh, I mean, maybe they had nothing against spreading you know, awareness about, about ALS, but they probably wouldn't have done it unless there was this other extrinsic motivation, namely getting attention on social media that really drove them to do it. And a lot of people indeed did. So that's a case where, you know, you set up a situation where there's something else that motivates people to, to do something that you want them to do. In this case, spread the message about this disease, ALS. And how do you make them do it? Well, that you do something that they're, you know, you, you give them a challenge that they're motivated to participate in, uh, pouring water over yourself and thereby getting a lot of attention. And people were trying to do it in more or less spectacular ways. Lots of celebrities got involved, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's also related to this problem. Croatia or Akrasia, some people say with a different... Uh, interpret uh, you know uh, pronunciations where you know maybe you think that it would be good to do something but you just don't find the intrinsic motivation to do it so uh 
then you yourself might think about what, what means could I take or other people may set up a situation for you whereby they can motivate you to do it. Uh, of course, they may also incentivize you to do things with this kind of gamification technique that you maybe are not particularly interested in doing, but the game that they're setting up might be such that that's motivating for you. And so you act in certain ways that by implication bring about some side effects that these other people, maybe a company or organization, want you to produce where, whereas you don't care about the side effect, for example, advertising their product, but you do enjoy, let's, let's say, posting on social media, getting likes or whatever it might be, that might be the means for you to spread whatever message it is. So here we're already getting a little bit to like technological ways of motivating people, for example, uh, creating trends on social media. Yeah, and the, the Icebook Challenge is a good example or illustration of that. And even though it's maybe a little bit dated because... Anyone who certainly lived through that period of time and even participated in the Ice Bucket Challenge, which I I did, I think at some point in time. Did you do it at all? I didn't do it, no. Well, you know, let it, letting the site down. But yeah, I, I think it would be, just became, I don't know how these things happen exactly. I don't know if there's a perfect way of predicting it. There's lots of books suggesting like how things go viral on social media. And I don't know if there's a good sort of algorithm or formula for making something go viral. But clearly with the Ice Bucket Challenge, you're kind of using the the power of peer pressure or social status or something like this to encourage people to participate in this thing. So that, you know, very high status people perform the challenge. Like I, don't know, I remember Bill Gates performing it at some point in time. A lot of actors and celebrities, Barack Obama, I think, might have even performed it at that time. He was still president. So very high status people doing it. People want to be part of that. But there was also, like, as far as I recall, there was kind of like a social nudging or peer pressure thing that at, at the end of each video, you would call out somebody else to do the challenge next. So you kind of pass it on. So that sort of chain letter function. So using the power of social media to encourage people to do something when they might, as you say, not have the uh, motivation to do it by themselves or not something they would have thought about by themselves per se. I, before we talk a little bit about technology, I maybe just want to reflect for a moment on this idea of weakness of the will is there some like why is it the philosophers are interested in this is it just purely as a practical problem you know how can we be better people and make sure that we don't uh, fall short of our ideals that could be one way of thinking about it and that might be how we're thinking about it in a kind of ethics senses um you know how can we improve when should we improve when should we be in control but there is also maybe like a metaphysical puzzle at the heart of it which has, says something about our nature as uh, whether we have free will or autonomy at all, because it seems odd or there's something paradoxical about the notion that you could want something and really want it and like it's your higher order desire or preference and yet be unable to do it. You know, that how you're, how is it that if you are a freely willed autonomous being that you sometimes fall short of what you really want to do? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's related to a, a discussion that again goes back to the ancient philosophers about whether the soul, as they would put it, is divided into different sort of parts or compartments, if you will. I mean, so in Plato, you know, in the Republic, you have the reason, the appetites and the passions, I think it is. Uh, Aristotle also has, you know, and the different, you know, the Hellenistic schools that I mentioned, they have different ways of uh, dividing up the, I mean, some people talk about the, the lower and the higher faculties in the soul, I and mean, that's maybe more in the medieval period. 
uh, building on the ancient philosophy tradition. So, I mean, on that way of thinking, where there are different competing parts of the soul that may have their own motivations, uh, you can see how there could be such a thing as, you know, maybe your reason wants one thing, but then your appetite wants another, and then maybe one uh, part of the soul or the mind wins out in this struggle for, you know, governing the agent. Now, some people have said that, yeah, that actually is puzzling because how can it be that there's one agent with different, you know, motivations pointing in different directions? You know, what does it mean that are you separate from your desires and your reason? Uh, or, you know, is it some sort of system that's just, you know, there are different levels of motivation that sometimes flows over in one direction and another. And as you said, that that uh, raises questions about free will. Uh, but it also just creates a puzzle about how to think about agency and what kind of capacities should be attributed to, to human-like agents. I mean, we're going to be talking some later episodes about artificial agents. And so maybe what capacities do they have? Could they have? Uh, what kind of agents could there be? But in the human case, a lot of the discussion traditionally about creation uh, accuracy has been about what capacities are part of rational agency and, uh, you know, under what circumstances could we have those capacities but somehow fail to exercise them? And, I mean, Aristotle, Plato uh, in the ancient world, uh, but also people like Donald Davidson uh, in sort of contemporary philosophy uh, have thought that there's a kind of deep puzzle here about how to sort of interpret what it is to be an agent and what it is to make decisions and how can you think for example that something is the best thing to do that the thing that you really want to do and yet not do it uh for some philosophers against such as davidson that's almost an incoherent idea and yet in sort of everyday life we all feel that there are often circumstances where we want to do something we think it's the best thing to do and yet we can't bring ourselves to do it yeah, I mean, and I think, as you say, most people have struggled with that with that in their everyday lives. So they probably, you know, just to some extent, things that are puzzling or problems to philosophers, often to people who haven't thought about this in a, through a philosophical lens, they don't seem like problems or puzzles because they're just sort of part of lived experience. I mean, they're again, they're practical problems, let's say, but they're not like these metaphysical or abstract problems. I and mean, this is something I often encounter, by the way. I don't know if you've ever encountered this when I discuss like the mind body problem with students, like at least when you first can pose that to them, they're like, well, what's the, you know, what's, what's the problem? There's no problem. <laughs> There's no issue. The mind is, I think most people have sort of a kind of innate, I mean, I, maybe this is one area where I disagree with Paul Bloom. I think he says that we're all innate dualists, but my experience talking to most people is that they just think their mind is in their heads, in their brains somehow. And, um, What's the puzzle in thinking about how the mind interacts with the material world or how it relates to the material world? Well, maybe in America, they're all dualists. And in Ireland, uh, everyone is materialist. Materialist, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyway, right. Let, let's talk about technology and behavior change a little bit. Um, so I think we, we through that discussion, we probably said enough to illustrate that the concept or idea of behavior change is something with obviously larger significance, very kind of deep roots in the philosophical tradition, but also then maybe associated with certain modern ideals around health and efficiency in, in the workplace. What kind of role does technology play in the process of behavior change and how is it being leveraged to change behavior? This is a big question in many ways, but there are many kind of illustrations that will make this idea, I think, resonate for people. Yeah, I think it can play different kinds of roles. And so one role, I guess, would be 
to sort of boost an already pre-existing motivation. So I, I mentioned that I, I enjoy running, uh, but I also actually use a running app that sort of uh, tracks my, my you know, the, the data about my runs, it can, you know, how long am I running and how often? And uh, I'm also, you know, my, my wife and my father-in-law, they use the same running app. And so we, you know, we're com- our running is compared on a leaderboard, et cetera. And so I must say about myself, I mean, this gives an additional boost or motivation to my, uh, to my running habits. And so I, you know, I, we sometimes, you know, my, maybe my father-in-law, we text each other and say, hey, well, I see that you've been running less uh, lately. What's going on? And, and so on. So that just adds a little bit of extra motivation. So but I, I think both him and I would still would be running, uh, even if we didn't use this running app. But it certainly helps to, to make us run more and more often and longer, et cetera. But then, so that would be one example, uh, a kind of little extra boost uh, to the motivation. Another kind of example would be with the technology sort of designed to kind of create a new motivation or rather to create a new habit uh, or some activity that you wouldn't otherwise uh, engage in. And I guess, again, going back to the sort of the ice bucket challenge of uh, actually, you know, you know, spreading, well, spreading sort of awareness about ALS. I mean, a lot of the people, I mean, maybe yourself, uh, maybe you didn't, I mean, I mean, perhaps you knew about it, perhaps you were motivated to do so anyway, but I can imagine that lots of people they had never heard of it. And even if they did hear about it, they might say, okay, fine. I, you know, it'd be nice if people heard about this uh, disease and there was more awareness of it, but uh, they wouldn't go out and, and do anything unless there was a social media there and there was a challenge and there was sort of peer pressure and there were possible likes and attention on social media to, 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 you know, to get out of this. Uh, that can create a whole new motivation. On, on this occasion, it's just a one-time thing. You know, you post... Uh, your video yourself, you know, pouring ice water over yourself and that that's it. But I guess the idea would then be, well, if we can have that happen on one occasion, maybe we can make it the case that people get new habits. And of course, when it comes to social media, people are already motivated to go on social media, but how long do they stay on social media and how often do they return to social media sites? Well, this is something that's interesting for for, uh, tech companies because they want people to be on there for long periods of time because then they can tell uh, prospective advertisers that, hey, people are on our websites, uh, social media sites all the time. And so this is a good place for you to advertise your product. And so they have to get the the, the social media companies have to get people to sort of return constantly and stay on the site and gamification and creating different kinds of game-like or competition-like incentives is one of the things they're doing displaying the number of views your posts are getting, uh, displaying prominently how many people are reacting to it in different ways, uh, et cetera, et cetera, are ways of kind of hooking people to create a new habit in them, namely the habit of constantly returning to these uh, uh, social media sites. And so there, I mean, there may have been a a pre-existing interest in, in trying out social media, but then really creating a strong motivation and really hooking people is part of the aim. Uh, so that's another way uh, that you can use this, this sort of gamification and other things to kind of create new habits of people. Um, yeah, and, and in that as well, we see this um, kind of, I mean, classic ethical dilemma question, which is uh, the way in which maybe you with your running app and your father-in-law, you're using technology to control your own behavior and kind of this is something that you're already interested in, it's project or life orientation or plan that you already have, let's say. Whereas with the other examples you're talking about, 
the technology, the companies behind it using the technological platform to control you in some sense, to behave, to change your behavior in a way that suits their agenda or their needs. So, you know, the ALS example is relatively minor, and I think most people say it's a, it's certainly a good cause. I know there are people who criticize it in some sense. That, if I recall correctly, at the time, some people were saying it's it's maybe already a reasonably well funded charity um and also there are other better causes so people let's say within like the effective altruist community would say well, there's better things that you could donate your money to rather than uh, participating in this this is monopolizing our attention in a negative way um but that that's kind of the point i'm making that's you're using technology yourself for your own agenda for your own purposes versus the technology being used as a platform to change your behavior to suit somebody else's needs or purposes and obviously there isn't necessarily like a smooth dividing line between those things because presumably with your running app, I don't know exactly how it works, but my guess is that that app is also created by a company and it serves their purposes to get you kind of hooked on the platform and, you know, participate in these leaderboards or sharing this information to gamify your behavior because you keep coming back and using it. And maybe they use it to sell advertising to you or something like that, or else they, charge you a subscription fee or something along those lines so that oftentimes those two things are are blended in the technology right the the, the two your, your self personal agenda and the agenda of somebody else are married together in this attempt to change and control your behavior that's right yeah and so as you were saying it's sort of a double-edged sword uh a lot of these companies say that you can get greater amounts of control over yourself if you use this self-tracking and other types of apps uh, but at the same time uh, the, the worry is that they actually start controlling you uh, from, from, from the outside, so to speak, even, even if it appears like a great thing. Yeah, running, exercising, very healthy. I'm getting control over my life. But on the other hand, they're collecting all sorts of data about me and uh, they might be able to predict my behavior. And that might be used in all sorts of ways where they can control my consumption behaviors. Uh, uh, the, you know, the next time I need to buy running gear, you know, that the, the, the company behind the running app is going to come to mind because uh, I associate running with that particular company, etc. So, uh, yeah, there obviously a lot of these technologies are going to be, you know, have good sides and bad sides to them. And uh, uh, obviously, if they had nothing that's appealing to people about them, then no one would use the, you know, the social media sites or the running apps or whatever app it might be. So there has to be some sort of incentive to, to hook people or to, to make people use these things. But then uh, it's not interesting for the organizations or companies behind these apps or other forms of technologies unless there's something in it for them, obviously. And uh, sometimes what's in it for them might be things that are quite offensive to people. I mean, some people worry about this idea of hooking people on social media, for example. Uh, you know, people get also sorts of anxieties about you know how they're performing in comparison with their peers. They see other people apparently doing well and they start thinking that well maybe my life is not going so well and there's you know all sorts of possible mental health issues that could come about and, and even this idea of being controlled in a certain sense by other people uh, which I think we would want to go on to discuss that that idea in itself is somehow uncomfortable the idea of controlling yourself exercising self-control great having some big company control you and other people that seems scary yeah, I want to get back to the kind of axiology of control in a moment, because that sort of dictates whether we view all of this positively or negatively. And then maybe at the end, we'll reflect a little bit about uh, um, whether we think technology can be used kind of for self-control or whether it, it is something that controls us or 
others control us through it. But maybe just conceptually, the conceptual space of behavior change technologies, I don't know if we're going to do a perfect job mapping it all out because there's some very complex frameworks out there for understanding all the different techniques or methods of, of behavior change. But roughly speaking, like what, what does technology do to enable people to change behavior either themselves or on, on um, behalf of others? Um, so one element of it is obviously tracking information about yourself or data about yourself that can somehow then be leveraged into a way of motivating behavior change. So tracking running data, you see, oh, I'm doing a mile in, I don't know, seven minutes or something, and I want to keep that pace, or I did, you know, I I, I ran, I, I, I don't know what's a reasonable uh, week for you, because let's say you ran uh, 30 kilometers last week, I'm going to try and do 35 this week. So you can, you know, you, you have the information, you kind of motivate yourself because you have certain goals that you want to achieve. Um, and the technology can track and record that data in a way that is useful for you for achieving your ends. Um, I suppose to some extent, the technology can give you goals as well. Like a lot of those running apps will have maybe badges that you can win. Like if you achieve certain things, I don't, I can't remember all the different ones that are out there. Um, I mean, this isn't a, a good illustration, but I, since I listen to a lot of like audiobooks when I'm driving and things, you know, the Audible app, um, and there are other apps available for people. Uh, it has lots of badges that you can win. I never, I never really look at them in much detail, but you know, the, the different levels of audiobook consumer. I think I, I, I'm proud to report I've achieved every possible badge that they have come up with. But like some of them are re really strange, like you know, listen for five days straight or something like that, or, um complete a book in one weekend that's a badge you can you can win on on audible but i guess for some people that might like motivate them to do things that they might not otherwise have have thought about doing and it could be the same with with a running app like saying oh get the the 10k badge or something like this um and then maybe the, there's another element where the technology can kind of nudge us or motivate us to do things by giving us like reminders or indications of when we need to do things so I mentioned earlier on like there's a research group in my university dedicated to technology and behavior change largely around medication and uh, the treatment of patients with chronic diseases but a large part of that is about like sending or providing notifications to them about when to take medication and that this can be a useful thing if you have an apple watch you know it'll tell you that you need to stand up and walk around or something like this periodically or it'll give you warnings if you're blood pressure is too high or your heart rate is erratic or something like this. And that can nudge you to, to kind of change or alter your behavior in some way. Is there anything else that I'm kind of missing out on here within that space of forms of behavior change? Yeah, I mean, we, we did mention a few things before, for example, uh, leaderboards, you know, ranking people in terms of who does the most or whatever it is one is supposed to do. Another is just uh, what we also talked about, like social media with likes, uh, you know, that, yeah, in, in a certain sense, that points you score. Uh, that can either be in the form of having people react to you, what you're doing, or it could just be that you get points on, let's say, your running app. You know, you run so and so many kilometers, or you know, whatever. You know, you uh, you you use, uh, let's say, the Duolingo uh, language learning app every day. There too, you get points and uh, and so on. So yeah, so getting points, getting reminders, notifications, having people being ranked on leaderboards, 
having other people sort of see what you're doing and reacting to it. Uh, those are some of the main ways of kind of motivating people. Yeah, I mean, there, there was a device years ago, which was maybe partly satirical. There's the Pavlock, which was based on like the ideas of Pavlovian conditioning that would give you a shock if you didn't, you know, engage in some relevant habit that hasn't really taken oh, off yeah, as, and, as an that idea. That reminds me, uh, another similar type of uh, behavior uh, controlling technology, so to speak, is in warehouses. Uh, I think in some Amazon warehouses, they the people working there wear, I don't know if it's like a wristwatch or like maybe on both arms, something like that, where it will vibrate, I think, in the, either the direction you should go or you shouldn't go. So you would actually get sort of physical stimulation, so to speak, that directs you like a, as you're walking in a certain direction. Uh, in the same way, in some cars, uh, people are experimenting with if, if they want to bring attention to something, should there be some sort of vibration in the steering wheel? Should there be a flashing light? Should there be a, a you know, sort of spoken message played? Uh, and so the, the people working on this, they're trying to sort of investigate what kind of uh, visual or other kind of signals could also uh, inspire people to, to sort of change their action or your know, behavior and uh, to, to take action. So, yeah, uh, I mean, giving shocks is one thing, but even just uh, having some device that kind of tells you what direction you're supposed to be walking in, like those uh, warehouse workers are doing, that, that's another type of behavior change technology that we haven't really mentioned. Yeah, I, I look at there are also like some technology that will shut off or turn that off if you kind of use them for a certain period of time. I know the, yeah. there's some been calls for like you know, video games to shut down after a certain period if people are playing them for too long, because again, that's the kind of way of using something within the technology to change behavior, although maybe ironically to correct a, a behavioral problem that was created by the technology in the first place. But anyway, let, let's kind of move on then to talk about the idea of control again. So this was a theme in our previous discussion. It's kind of a theme that'll run through part of your book, right? Because how we think about behavior change, the value of behavior change does hinge to some extent on our perceptions or understanding of control, the value of self-control, the problems of being controlled by others, right? So let's just start with the question, like what does it actually mean for somebody to be in control of something? Um, and what are some of the complexities of that concept or idea of control? Absolutely. I mean, before I say something about that, I mean, let me just say like one of the reasons why this is a running theme throughout the book is just that uh, whenever there's talk about new technology, there are two questions that always come up. Can we control it? And second, who's responsible? Uh, so those things are just, they always, whether it's about AI or running apps or whatever, those questions tend to always come up. Okay, now, and one of the reasons why this is a kind of philosophically interesting uh, question, set of questions is that both the idea of responsibility and the idea of control, which of course are tightly linked, are complex ideas, I think. And so, so it's not as if, you know, you can, you know, control is, and then you can just say one thing and that's all that control is. At least that's what I think. I think that the idea that we have a control is actually a kind of rich set of associations where uh, in diff some contexts, some of those associations tend to be more prominent. In other contexts, some other associations tend to be what come to mind. I mean, uh, sometimes when we think think about controlling people, uh, something like surveillance is the first thing that comes to mind. Is someone sort of monitoring us and keeping track of what we're doing? Uh, if we are ourselves maybe driving a car, controlling the car might mean having a steering wheel. So this is something that some people think is worrisome about self-driving cars, that you wouldn't have a, a functioning steering wheel, perhaps. Uh, Go into the car example again. Can you stop the car? 
uh, or is it going to keep running? Uh, if whatever you do, then if you can't stop something, maybe you don't have control over it. Do you understand something? What I can't understand, I can't control. It's a kind of intuition that people sometimes have. Um, does the thing that I'm trying to control uh, sort of somehow align with, to go back to the idea of value alignment with my values, with my desires? Uh, and maybe something is such that I can't directly steer it with the help, uh, you know, by means of a steering wheel or something like that. However, the thing in question might still track my desires and my values. And so let's say that I have a sort of a self-driving car that's also somehow interpreting what I want all the time so that it always kind of does what I want it to do. Uh, and it, uh, you know, functions in a way that fits with what I want, what I desire, but I can't directly steer it. And perhaps, perhaps I don't understand uh, how it works, but nevertheless, it somehow reads me and it knows where I want to, where I want to go, how fast I want to get there, what, by what route, etc. So it does what I want it to do. So in that sense, I do have some kind of control over it. But uh, so you can imagine a, a case where I have, I can steer something, it, I, I can influence it, I can stop it, I, I understand it, I can monitor it, I understand, uh, you know, and so on and so forth. That might be like sort of a maximal type of control along all of these dimensions. But quite often, you know, we have maybe a little bit of control in that, in the sense of being able to monitor something, maybe we have a little bit of control in, in you know, we have limited uh, ability to steer it, and maybe we have a limited ability to stop it once it's up and running, and, and so on and so forth. And maybe it's partly tracking our desires and values. And so uh, you can think of this sort of like a dial, some an old school stereo or something like that, or a keyboard where you can have different settings. And so that, you know, you can have the maximal control if all dials are, uh, you know, turned to max, uh, you know, to, to 10 or whatever. But quite often, uh, these different aspects of control, I think, are going to be, you know, not all maximized. And it can also be spread over different people. So that uh, if there is a particular technology, there are some ways in which we think of control where maybe, maybe you have more control over it in the sense that you have a better ability to understand the thing. Maybe I am the one who can stop the process once it's up and running, maybe another person sits behind a steering wheel, but uh, they don't really understand what they're doing, etc. So you, you could imagine this, and it's aligning with the values of yet another agent. So control, at least the way I think about it, could actually be spread across different people, at least in the sense that uh, one or more of the different uh, complex, complex aspects of control could sort of be uh, distributed across different people that may they may all be on the same team and they may be working as a team uh, which is may might be a good thing or they might not even be on the same team so to speak so they all share in control but somehow they're not working together and of course that can be problematic in its own way yeah so i mean as you say that it's kind of complex or multi-dimensional phenomenon and you've covered i think all the aspects of it in that description discussion of it but or that the ones that you cover in your book but just to sort of summarize for people when you think about it you look at um control as having at least five dimensions or elements to it right so one is this sort of value alignment it it, it, it does it align with your value so so sorry, let me just say back up for a second when we're saying that person x is in control of something let's say uh, you're in control of your running behavior or something or you're in control of the car you have these five things you can run through or ask questions about. Does it align with the person's values? Do they want to be doing that activity, driving in that direction, uh, running like this? Then you talk about interventions. Do they have direct or indirect means available to them? 
to actually change the course of events, so to speak, I guess, is that how you would put it, how you, whether you can, whether you can actually influence the outcome in some meaningful way is understanding whether you actually know what you're doing, you understand what you're doing, monitoring, whether you're able to monitor or keep track of what you're in control of. And then so the last thing is what you talk about is, is robustness. Which is maybe the more most opaque, perhaps people are, um, who are listening in. Uh, so, I mean, this is what you say in the book about it: is that um, how robust is your ability to make interventions to conform what you want to control to your values and will, um, and how robust is your understanding of it? So, like, what do you what exactly do you mean by that element of robustness of control? Okay, yeah, no, yeah. Thanks for bringing it up. I, I forgot to mention that. Uh, well, I'm thinking about, uh, let's say, two different people uh, who are drivers, they have cars, and let's say that you are a really good driver, and maybe I am a less good driver. It could be then that part about that consistency is that you are able to you know, drive in a safe way when you know when it's uh, you know, sunny outside and uh, you're not very tired, etc. But you're also able to do that when it's, when it's really rainy and the weather's really bad, uh, when, they're, when it's really dark outside, and when you're tired. Uh, you can still drive in a safe way. So you can control your vehicle sort of across different contingencies in a safe way. But maybe I'm such that I can really only control a car if I'm really alert, if it's very sunny outside and not too many people are on the road uh, and, and so on. So like that's one way of thinking about this idea of robustness. I'm able to kind of robustly control something both you know in easy circumstances and also when things get more challenging but then of course for every single other dimension of control you can ask you know am i able to steer or intervene with some process you know across a wide range of circumstances or only in a narrow subset of the possible circumstances i might find myself in then my intervention abilities are not very robust uh, am i able to monitor the thing i'm trying to control in different com conditions or only on, on the certain favorable circumstances, then well, then not my ability to monitor is not very robust. Uh, does the thing function in a way that aligns with my values only if the conditions are right, so to speak, or will it continue to align with my values in, in all sorts of highly unlikely or more or less likely or uh, circumstances across a very wide range of possible ways in which things might develop? And that's what I can sort of mean by, by robustness, that uh, yeah, the, the different aspects of control could be more or less robust, you know, across a more or less wide range of situations that may arise. Yeah, so I guess maybe philosophically, it's something like a kind of a, a modal condition on control that it's yeah. um, across the what full what range of possible worlds does this control exist across, but also including these different dimensions or aspects of control, because each one of them can be more or less robust, right? Yeah. Okay, uh, maybe we like, like connect this back then, or will we try and connect this back then to technology and control? Because there's another sort of conceptual distinction you draw into this about um, the subject of control versus the object of control. So maybe let's talk about that uh, distinction as well. Yeah, so I mean, and this is something that's technical terminology, kind of philosophical jargon, and I don't know if uh, it's widely used, but that's what I used in the book. And so what I mean by the subject of control is whoever is doing the controlling. And so that could be a single person. So maybe you are controlling your car, or it could be an organization. So maybe uh, people are together controlling as social media 
website or app or whatever it might be. Uh, there's not one single person there who controls the app, but maybe an organization and maybe they have different responsibilities. Uh, I mean, going back to this idea of the different aspects of control, perhaps sometimes being spread across different people. But anyway, whoever is able to influence, uh, to understand, to monitor, etc., they are the subjects of control. They are the, the ones doing the controlling. And then whatever it is that they're trying to control, and the car, they're running, uh, people's social media use, whatever it might be, that's the object of control in this way of thinking. So one can always ask, you know, who exactly is controlling what or whom? I mean, it could be that I'm trying to control you. Uh, maybe you are trying to control me, or maybe you're trying to control your car, uh, you're running, or whatever it might be. And so very much depending on who is controlling what or whom, uh, the sort of the, uh, I don't know, the ethical value of what's going on can be quite different, I think. Yeah, and, and I do think that distinction is important and useful when it comes to technology, because it gets back to the point we introduced earlier on, how you know a lot of people view technology positively in terms of self-control, maybe not negatively in terms of control by others. Um, but part of the reason for that is um, in the case of self-control, both the subject and the object of control seem to kind of coincide within the one person. Like I'm the subject of control and I, the object of control is my behavior typically or something that I want to control in, in my life. Whereas in the other case, the two are distinct, right? So it's another group of people or a person who's controlling me, I'm the object of control and uh, they're the subject of control. And that seems more problematic. And this sort of then links into something that I wanted to talk about with you in relation to the axiology of control, let's say, and how it relates to other cognate concepts in philosophy and ethics, right? Because, I mean, I'll just set this out and see whether you agree with it or disagree with it. But it, like in some, to some extent, the concept of control as you sort of define it or think about it in your chapter is kind of like value neutral in one way, in the sense that you can say that X is in control of something without necessarily passing a value judgment on whether that is a good or bad thing, right? So those five dimensions or elements of control that we were just running through, you know, you can say that Facebook controls my behavior. It, it's kind of high on those dimensions of control without saying that it's a good thing that Facebook controls my behavior, right? But then there are other kind of concepts in philosophy, political philosophy and ethics that are similar ideas, but they have a more kind of value-laden connotation. So I was thinking in particular of something like autonomy or liberty because or freedom, because these are often linked to control. Like autonomy, I guess, you know, translates or the etymology of it is technically like self-legislation or, you know, creating laws or rules for yourself. But that is often like linked to an ideal or model of self-control, right? Like being in control of your own destiny, being a master of your own fate, so to speak. And then liberty or freedom is very much linked to the absence of control by others, right? Is that how you sort of think about that conceptual landscape as well? That control itself is value neutral, and then you have these other ideas which are more sort of value-laden in political philosophy. Absolutely. And that's how I think about it. And part of the reason is that I think that control can be both positive and negative, uh, again, depending on who the subject of control in is and what uh, or who this, this, the object of control is. And so uh, there are different ways of dividing things up. And so uh, it's a traditional idea that if you are both the subject and object of control, you're exercising self-control, and that's a good thing. 
Some people even think it's good in itself. It's a kind of virtue. It's a kind of goal that we should be aiming for. It's good and virtuous to be in control over yourself. Whereas uh, if what you're controlling is another person who's an autonomous person, then that is sort of uh, prima facie or like, you know, on the first glance, a bad thing. Uh, every person is supposed to be autonomous and in control of themselves to some extent. And the more you want to con- control other persons, the, the, the more suspicious and vicious you might be in your behavior. Now, if you, what you want to control is what, I mean, so Kant, for example, he makes this distinction between things and persons. According to someone like Kant, whenever there's a thing you want to control, that's never a problem because things are there for us to use and for us to do whatever we want with them and to control them, no problem. But from a Kantian point of view, whenever the thing that you're controlling is not a thing, but a person, that's always problematic because you you, you may be failing to respect their autonomy. Uh, now, there are interesting questions here about whether there can be circumstances where it could be wrong to control a thing on the one hand and circumstances in which it could be not wrong to control a person on the other. And so uh, maybe start with the former. So like if the thing I'm trying to control is a robot that symbolizes a person, and now come back to what we discussed last time, then perhaps there would be at least something symbolically problematic about wanting to control that thing. Again, the thing is a robot that looks and acts like a human, let's say, and so that, that symbolizes a person. So there could be something symbolically problematic with, with wanting to control such things. Uh, there could be something okay about, let's say, I mean, you're a parent, you have two children. Uh, uh, you know, to some extent, I might even think that you should be in control of your children just to some extent. Uh, and if not, then you might be a bad parent. But on the other hand, uh, that control, I think, should also be a matter of sort of raising them to become independent, autonomous agents that can later you know go off and be autonomous and if you want to keep your parental control you know as they move into their you know their teens their 20s their 30s etc they said you live till a really old age and you keep wanting to control them in the way that you do now after when they're pretty small then that would suddenly become a bad thing so uh, i think the control you should exercise over small children should actually be a way of making them enabling them to to be able to control themselves in a effective sort of way so that that would be a case where it's actually good to control other persons you know on the assumption that children small children are persons uh so to speak uh and then however the aim should be that they should become independent and self-controlled to some extent yeah i mean certainly you sometimes encounter signs in public places admonishing parents to kind of keep control of their children which kind of suggests maybe there's an ethical duty or obligation upon parents to control children in in at least some settings but as you say i think the the dynamics of that relationship over time change and what you laid out there about controlling them or educating them or training them so that they can exercise their own kind of control over their own lives subsequently is, is probably the model that we typically adopt i mean so what like what you said there i think it all makes sense and is very familiar to us nowadays because i guess we're so sort of embedded in or wedded to kind of liberal individualistic model right and that that's sort of the ethical ideal that maybe it's like a post kantian idea that uh, you know ethics as self-governance that this is the ethical ideal that we be- all become kind of self-governing agents and so control of ourselves is a good thing control by others is a bad thing prima facie there may be contexts in which it's legitimate or acceptable to control another person, like you control the life of a, of a small child or a prisoner, 
But even in those cases, let's say maybe there's something like not ideal about it that that we we recognize it as a compromise or something that we just have to do while the child matures or while the prisoner repents or reforms or something like this, let's say. So um, within that kind of liberal individualistic model, there's something always perhaps a bit like ethically dubious about controlling other people. It may be the most acceptable alternative in some instances, but it's not not ideal. But maybe it is worth like scrutinizing the role or importance of control within our sort of axiological framework. And you, you touch upon this a little bit in, in your discussion of this. And there's two ways of getting at this, right? And one question which we can think about is, is there a problem sometimes of trying to control too much or trying to exercise too much self-control? And that can be ethically problematic. The the control freak, I think you use that phrase in the chapter, let's say. And, you know, again, this is maybe an idea with a very long pedigree because you can think about ancient Stoic philosophy as being entirely sort of grounded in, at least in the practical elements of it, not the metaphysical elements of it, grounded in this ideal of... Um, there are some things that are not within our control and part of our unhappiness or unease in life stems from this desire to control things that we cannot actually meaningfully control. And the only thing we can really control is our reaction to events around us. And that's what we need to kind of focus on. So, I mean, and I think that's an interesting idea and it's obviously a very prominent and important idea in kind of modern um, self-help, but also let's say actually in modern psychotherapy, like uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, as I understand it, is largely a kind of maybe slightly more sophisticated and evidence-based manifestation of these convergent stoic ideals, which is that like a lot of depression, anxiety, unhappiness stems from our kind of attempt to control things that is sort of beyond our control and not thinking properly about our reactions to events and how we think about events, which we can control. So yeah, that's one so that- thing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, oh, I was going to say, say that's yeah, yeah. That's one one thing you, know, you could say about this, and then another. So, so, so one thing then, as as you were just laying out, that okay, there there are some aspects of us about ourselves that we can control, some some we, we cannot, and so we should try to focus on the ones that we can control. So this is one old idea. Another old idea is the idea that self control isn't it a virtue, but it's one virtue among many virtues, and there should be what the ancients call a unity of the virtues. And so, if I only try to exercise self-control that's the only thing I'm, I'm interested in then i might be lacking in generosity compassion or you know whatever other virtues you, you courage whatever it might be uh wisdom uh prudence uh that you think is the set of virtues i should have and those should all kind of balance uh, each other out and so to create a kind of unity now that's one thing you can say about what might make someone a control freak that's a little bit different than what you were laying out, namely the idea that one focuses too much on one, one virtue and not enough on the others. Uh, I mentioned Kant and Kantian philosophy. He, he also has a take on this. He actually starts uh, the most famous book, The Groundwork, with the idea that, yeah, so there are lots of virtues such as self-control. He even mentions, I think, if I remember correctly, like a sense of humor or things like that. They're all good. But if you have them, but you don't have a sort of what he calls a good will, uh, a basically moral, uh, morally good, I don't know, basic principle governing your life, then actually some of these things that are virtues can actually be used for, for bad ends. And so like, let's say that I'm a really evil person, I'm a mass murdering, uh, you know, a monster, so to speak, and I have a lot of self-control, when actually then I can use my self-control for really bad ends. And so Kant thinks that, well, I, 
I better be sure that I have a good basic moral uh, you know, disposition that sort of is, is helping me to use my self-control in a good way. Uh, and so that I could be a control freak if I care only about control, but not uh, about, you know, what, what, what am I going to use the control for? I mean, what, what are good ends for me to orient my life around? I mean, if it's just about controlling, then that might be yet another way of being a control freak. I have to, according to Kant, have a good will. I mean, for him, that means we talked about this in a previous episode in other terms. I mean, I'm treating myself and other people as ends and never as mere means, uh, trying to live in a way that can be universally uh, adopted by everyone so that we don't treat ourselves as a special uh, you know, uh, privileged person that gets rights and that other people and, and don't get, etc. So anyway, those are some different ways in which from different points of view of you know ancient, modern and contemporary philosophy, you might be a control freak if you care too much about control, uh, all of which is compatible with saying that control is important, perhaps even something that could be a kind of partial virtue or end in itself. But it just shouldn't be the only thing. Yeah, then that's right. So that, those are the two things I want to mention. So partly this idea that maybe we try to control things that we can't control, but then also the control is one virtue among many or one good among many other things that we need to sort of balance them. I don't I mean, I don't know if you bring this up actually in your discussion in the book, but perhaps there is a link back here with like some of these other ethical traditions, like non-Western ethical traditions as well, right? That maybe they place less of an emphasis on the virtue or value of self-control above all else. I, I don't know because I'm not an expert on them, but perhaps like within yeah, well, Mark, an I Ubuntu can... or Confucian tradition is more communitarian emphasis on kind of communitarianism and perhaps the control of the self. Well, to, to one extent, you could say this ideal of self-control is mythical and not, not attainable within the Western tradition. And we need to be kind of more sensitive to our sort of relationships with others and I don't, I don't know how to think about it with kind of balancing of, of control of self with kind of influences on others and how they influence us as well, right? Absolutely. I, mean, I, did, I saw recently a talk by someone uh, speaking about African philosophy and, and, and ma making a distinction between the, the Western idea of maximal self-control and sort of not being uh, monitored, etc., by other people versus a more com communitarian uh, Ubuntu perspective where you sort of help each other to be become better people like in a mutual uh, way which i mean it's not exactly mutual control but uh, some of the aspects that we talked about in relation to control might be emphasized less uh, and uh, ideas about enabling each other to become better people by sort of uh, interacting in certain ways and maybe encouraging certain behaviors discouraging others uh, that might from some points of view be, be seen as other people trying to influence you and in I mean, not autonomy undermine way, but maybe not like in a way that maximizes, oh, I have to decide everything myself and other people can't influence me. Uh, so I, I, mean, I wouldn't want to suggest that other traditions don't care about self-control, but uh, they may care about it in a slightly different way. And they, uh, I mean, what, I mean, actually, uh, I, I do talk about Confucian ethics in the chapter about what is ethics. And one of the things that I noticed when I was reading up on this a little bit is that the idea of becoming wiser uh, as, you know, growing as a moral person uh, is seen as a kind of, you know, an ethical ideal. I mean, it is not exactly presented in the terms of acquiring more self-control, but it certainly uh, means, acquire, um, for example, becoming more 
uh, moderate in your reactions and taking things with a certain amount of you know not reacting in a too emotional kind of way when something happens trying to think about what's the wise thing to do in response to you know the challenges that you might be facing etc so it could be that self-control is indeed an ideal but uh, it may not take the form of the sort of the liberal idea of autonomy in the same way. And it might be more communal. It might be more uh, understood in some of these other traditions in respect of you know, what does it mean to be a good community member and how do we, I mean, actually some uh, uh, feminist critics of uh, liberal uh, yeah, autonomy uh, fetishism say that the self is actually really communally created. And so uh, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't expect uh, ex um, uh, respect people's autonomy, but we shouldn't think of the self as something that's completely separate from the people that we live around. Yeah, I mean, so I'm, I'm more familiar with that kind of feminist critique of liberal autonomy, and at least within kind of legal philosophy or legal theoretical circles, there's sometimes an attempt to replace the, the discussion of autonomy or self-control with an ideal of agency or legal agency, which is yeah. supposed to be kind of slightly different and more sensitive to the communitarian influences on on control. But if we try and like, because this obviously is a very big topic, and we can go for hours on the idea of autonomy or self-control. If we sort of tie this back into technology a bit, and maybe just kind of wrap up this discussion of this chapter on maybe a personalized note, like what do we think ourselves about control through technology in our lives you know do, do you think that you can control your life through technology as a tool or do you feel like technology is controlling you in some sense or companies let's say controlling you through technology um i mean i could lead off to some extent on this and say i you know i haven't done a formal accounting of it and where it all kind of washes out but i there are certainly ways in which I can positively use technology to control my behavior and um, have done so in the past. I mean, to some extent with those kinds of like exercise tracking apps or, you know, diet tracking apps, some kinds of hobbies or pursuits I have, like, you know, playing chess or something can be quite fun using computer programs if you don't have people that you can interact with all the time and you can you know, improve your level and you can play different kind of puzzles and uh, it's a way of kind of achieving goals uh, through through those apps and services. Um, so I can see those kind of positive. Um, I don't really use very many kind of like notifications or nudges in my, my life. And I, like, I'm not a huge fan of, and this might say more about my personality than anything else, but like I'm not a huge fan of like interpersonal comparison or competitiveness on these apps. So like a leaderboard for running, let's say, I think that would that would probably disincentivize me more than it would incentivize me insofar as uh, to some extent I would say that I'm falling short of everyone else and maybe I would be worried about how I measure up compared to other people. But also, I suppose I don't like I don't always like to think of myself in those through competitive terms and it's not the kind of person that I want to be to think that I'm better than someone else or to um, look at how I compare or rank to other people. Like, not to say that I never do that. I'm sure I do do that on a, to some extent and I think everyone does it. But um, in kind of moments of self-reflection, that's not the kind of person I want to be. And I don't, so I don't enjoy using those kinds of 
competitive ranking features of those kinds of apps and services, let's say, uh, when I have used them in the past. But I, I also say I'm not a very consistent user of them. But like beyond that, I would say like on a day-to-day basis, I certainly feel like I'm perhaps like more controlled by technology than I would like. And I know this is a very common feeling amongst many people. But let's say like things like social media, um, I do feel like I get in, kind of trapped in endless loops on these things, like looking for you know, notifications on email or Facebook or um, Twitter or, or any social media platform. Uh, those are the main ones that I use, um, LinkedIn and things like that. I'm not on TikTok or Instagram or Threads or Snap or any of these other services. Perhaps that uh, shows my age more than anything else. Um, but yeah, I, I do feel like I just lose endless hours of my life in a kind of social media attention black hole. And to that extent, I feel like it's a negative influence. And I feel like I'm less in control of my own behavior than I would like it to be. Uh, so I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Uh, yeah, I mean, on that last point, I mean, uh, it goes back to this idea of uh, these technologies that uh, influence behavior as being a sort of a double-edged sword. I mean, there are benefits and drawbacks. I mean, it, it is useful, for example, as an academic, I find, to advertise your work on social media because this is a way of making sure that people hear about it because so, so much uh, academic work is published all the time. And uh, unless it's brought to people's attention that, you know, you have a new paper or a new book, whatever it might be, then you know, chances are that no one's going to hear about or read or maybe make use of the research that, you know, you put in your hard work into. So uh, there, there seems to be a great benefit in that sense. But on the other hand, as you say, then, uh, then that man can create a sort of stress to sort of, you know, is anyone paying attention? You might want to go and check if anyone noticed your post or whatever it might be. Uh, and then, uh, of course, something like email is, you know, you, you check it, you're partly dreading that you're going to get some new uh, assignment or task that you don't want to get. But on the other hand, you might also be checking to see whether, you know, as something good is being announced to you via email and so on. So, uh, and this all might make you feel that you're being controlled and trapped in a kind of, as you said, almost like a vicious circle of like, you know, just going around and around. And I mean, uh, uh, Matthew Dennis, a colleague of mine, talks about doom scrolling. I mean, I don't think that he invented that uh, topic, but he talks about digital well-being as something that's, as he puts it, being threatened by all these mechanisms. I mean, I, but the question is also, does it lead to greater control of a positive kind? And I actually think that the running app is a good example of this. And I mean, I would agree with you. I wouldn't want to be on a leaderboard with people sort of outside of my my, my close family. Uh, I, I'm not sure I would appreciate that. But I think if it's just like, you know, my family-in-law and myself were being compared and it's a small enough group and we, you know, there's sufficient lack of pressure, so to speak, that it's just kind of fun and a friendly competition in a way that's not uncomfortable. Uh, however, uh, the, the thing that I think is maybe most helpful with that app is that uh, before when I went running, I would just time myself, so to speak. So my goal had perhaps been, I mean, for a while I, I went you know, running three times a week for one hour. and that's, uh, But that, of course, can mean different things in terms of how fast you're running or how slow you're running. And then uh, at some point I ran uh, you know, for 30 minutes every time I went running. But now with this app, you know, you can, in addition to checking how, how long you run, uh, how many minutes, you can also check you know, how long, how many kilometers. And then uh, you can sort of pace yourself and so that, uh, uh, I mean, I 
you know, want to run at a certain speed, uh, you know, for a certain period of time. And that is just easier to do. It's easier to control, you know, how fast you're running uh, using something that both tracks, you know, time and also a distance, etc. So that's that's a way of you know positively controlling yourself. But I mean, I do did want to add just one thing to to relate uh, the first half of our discussion uh, to the second half. I mean, so we talked about uh, different technological ways of controlling people, uh, ourselves and others, in the first half, and then we sort of switched over. I mean, I don't know if it's a half, but let's say it's called the second half. Then we talked about the value of control, and we said that, uh, or I at least asserted that control over yourself is often seen as good. Whereas control over other people is seen as something really negative. I mean, the worst case is slavery, but even less as uh, sort of severe types of control over other people is seen as a bad thing. Uh, we live in a kind of liberal uh, ideology where self-control is good and, and control over others is bad and, and an infringement on their freedom. So that just means that if there are tech companies that are trying to control us, uh, so other people trying to control us, then that really clashes with the ideal of enjoying self-control and autonomy and the, the idea that it's bad for other people to control other persons. So there, it's, it's an interesting thing about how a lot of technologies these days are, are ways of uh, affecting people's behavior and to, to bring about behavior change and to thereby control them at the same time as we think that it's bad if other people try to control us each person should be in control over themselves. So this is an interesting clash there. And definitely uh, when uh, one sometimes feels the stress of too much social media, too much email, too much technology giving us notifications, telling us how well or how, how not very well we're doing, it, it, you know, it, there's a sense that we're being controlled by these technologies, the tech companies, by the organizations that maybe force us to use them. And that you, know, you, you feel that you, know, you, you have less control than maybe you would like to have and that's maybe both stressful on the one hand but also sense that you know you being uh, i mean like i can i didn't do this in, in my book because i don't know enough about Foucault and michel Foucault, but I, I could easily see you know there could be an interesting sort of Foucauldian analysis about how this is sort of a, a power game where there are forces uh, that are uh, you know socializing us into a certain way of being and that could be seen as uh, from that point of view a kind of uh yeah of, I don't know, uh, like the, I mean, Foucault, he likes to talk about Bentham and the Panopticon, like, you know, this prison in which you never know when you're being watched uh, and by the guards. And so therefore you, you behave in a way that you think would be pleasing to them. And Foucault says that actually a lot of modern life is like that, that, you know, you never know who's watching you and you never know, uh, you know, whether it's bad that they see you do certain things and you try to kind of self-censor yourself so that you behave in an acceptable way, constraining yourself, maybe not realizing I don't know, with the, some of your wishes and desires because you feel that you're always being watched. And so and we didn't really talk about things in those terms. I mean, you did mention sort of a cultural critiques of uh, this idea, but and so I could definitely see how someone, you know, who's an expert on that kind of way of thinking could, could really uh, do something with this idea of behavior technologies and take it in a kind of related but slightly different direction that could be quite interesting. Yeah, I mean, I kind of briefly touched upon it at the start when I yeah. suggested that this was linked to kind of an ideology of, of kind of maybe neoliberal self-governance and responsibilization of behavior. And yeah, you can certainly tie that in with Foucault's ideas of, of governmentality. Or, and I'm not a, an expert on Foucault either, but um, as I understand it, that that's kind of part of his critique or reflection on modern society, that it, it involves this uh, 
kind of use of different forms or mechanisms of governance that go beyond their traditional kind of nation state form, including kind of governance at an individual level over your own kind of body or your own your own intellectual and bodily capital, so to speak. Um, yeah, uh, I, I, did have, I did have one other reflection on what you were saying there, which is like in some of my discussions in recent times of um, the ways in which technology are changing or altering maybe moral practices and behaviors. I do have some reflections on the effect on power relations, which I guess do tie into some extent with discussions of control. And one hypothesis I had, which I guess is more to do with like personal assistive artificial intelligence. So not necessarily like you know, running apps or gamification tools necessarily. But one idea that I had within it was that it, it reduced your dependency on local or proximate others. So like the people that in your immediate social environment that you would usually rely upon for certain things, like, I don't know, filling in forms or providing certain kinds of assistance to you. You don't have to rely upon them so much. So it maybe reduces the the power that they have over you and the control that they influence over you. But it actually does increase your dependency on distal others, namely like the people who own and control these AI platforms. And that there was something interesting happening then in terms of um, a kind of social interdependency and those kind of control relationships, let's say, within that communitarian context that um, we were delocalizing control more maybe as a result of that. So I, I don't know um, if that was an interesting idea or not. Maybe we could uh, just wrap up this discussion then with some uh, recommendations or suggestions. I'm just going to give one recommendation today, which is uh, a book from a few years ago by Evan Selinger and Brett Frischman called Reengineering Humanity. And so, I mean, it's a, a book is a couple of hundred pages long, but it has some interesting ideas in there about control and self-control and how, whether we are being controlled by technology or whether we can use technology to control our own behavior. And one of the things I like about the book, even though you know Evan and I probably disagree about many things and Brett as well, um, they have some kind of arresting or interesting metaphors or mental models for thinking about these debates. And two in particular kind of stand out to me, which I've spoken about before on my blog and on my podcast. I've interviewed the authors about the book if people are interested to check that out. They have this um, idea of the reverse Turing test, which is this idea that um, instead of focusing on how technology is becoming more human-like, we should focus on how technology is making us more machine-like. And that's one of their critiques of the negative impact of technology and kind of self-control, that it's bypassing kind of rational conscious mechanisms of self-control and turning us into these kind of simple stimulus response machines. And then they also have this idea about the free will wager, which is kind of based on Pascal's wager and how we should wager and believe that we have free will, even if we can't ever be kind of fully philosophically convinced of this proposition. This might be something that comes up, by the way, in, in subsequent chapters, uh, now that I think about it, but um, subsequent episodes of this. Uh, uh, but I think that's a, kind of an interesting idea. Um, and then if we take that wager, if we believe that we have free will, this sort of influences our, our moral perspective on technology as well. So that's my um, recommendation. 
Yeah, no, that's a great book. And uh, I really like the, the reverse Turing test idea. I'm actually, it's my own work I'm doing at the moment. I'm interested in the idea that AI might give us a kind of artificial intelligence. I mean, it might enable us to act as if we are intelligent, where we might not need to have any intelligence in some areas of life to some extent anymore. So I'm definitely very much, much a fan of that book and influenced by it in my own work. And I have to cite it. Another work... Uh, that I often uh, refer to. And we haven't really talked about the issue of privacy uh, in this episode, which we could have done, because that's um, we, we were focusing on uh, control and the value of control. But uh, a lot of this behavior change technologies by tracking uh, data and uh, information about us, of course, are threats to privacy. And so I can warmly recommend uh, Carissa Velis's book, uh, Privacy is, is Power. Uh, which, I mean, you've also interviewed Carissa on your podcast, and so people can check that out, of course. Uh, but the book itself is uh, uh, fascinating. It's a little bit scary. It's, you know, uh, Carissa Veliz goes through all the privacy threats that we are facing these days and how uh, the, the, the less privacy you have, the more other people have power over you. And that, of course, relates to our discussion of control today. And then the, the opposite thesis that she defends is that actually, if you make yourself behave in a way that protects your own privacy, you actually give yourself more power. And so, uh, but it's a very fascinating and, as I said, partly scary uh, book and uh, something that I highly recommend and something that's very relevant to what we were talking about today. Yeah, no, that's a great book and um, very readable book as well. It's kind of, um, I guess, yes. it's a sort of trade book, which we might call it. Um, so it's uh, accessible to a wide audience. It's, it's actually a book I often recommend to students as a sort of introduction into debates about privacy and technology. Okay, um, so I think we'll wrap up there. And the next episode, we'll talk about, I guess, what ha has become one of the biggest discussions in technology ethics, which is responsibility and responsibility gaps. So um, that'll be the, the focus of uh, the next episode. I hope I'm right about that now. Now that I think I, uh, I, no, yeah, I, I, um, yeah. I just realized I didn't check the sequence of chapters before I said it. But yeah, I think that is correct. Yeah. All right. Thanks a lot. Okay.